You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Curtis Tate. This week we'll hear about diabetes management and prevention. We'll also hear about a mental health resource for first responders. We'll hear from an author with roots in the southern coal fields. And because Halloween was this week, we'll hear a story about a haunted boat. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. A company owned by the family of Governor Jim Justice has been sued over workers' compensation. I filed this story. LM Insurance, a subsidiary of Liberty Mutual, says Bluestone Resources and affiliated Justice companies owe $1.75 million in premium payments. The complaint, filed in U.S. District Court for the Western District of Virginia, says Bluestone filed an application in 2020 for a workers' compensation insurance policy for its operations in Virginia and West Virginia. In 2021, LM Insurance canceled the policy for non-payment of premiums. LM Insurance asked Bluestone to pay the remaining balance, but Bluestone has not done so, the filing says. Neither Justice nor any of his family members are named in the suit. Bluestone is based in Roanoke, Virginia. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. A Nitro Elementary School teacher received a $25,000 Milk and Educator Award. Emily Rice has more. In the surprise of a lifetime, Jana Hamrick, a fifth grade teacher at Rock Branch Elementary School in Nitro, West Virginia, received a Milken Educator Award, often called the Oscar of Teaching. Hamrick was completely unaware of her candidacy for the award. Cheers erupted from the students and faculty filling the cafeteria as Hamrick's name was announced by Governor Jim Justice. The Milken family makes this really a big and you know that teachers can't apply. Where is Jana Hamrick? Hamrick has been teaching in Putnam County for 12 years. She said she puts her heart and soul into teaching. Every single day I come in here because I love the kids and I invest in them daily um, because of that passion. And I think if I'm, I have that passion and I treat them like that, they give me the same respect and love in return. Milken Educator Awards Vice President Stephanie Bishop said that passion is what made Hamrick stand out to the organization. And Ms. Hamrick really stood out as being in the top 1% of educators in this nation because of what she's doing in the classroom um, to innovate and how she is really in tune with reaching the whole child and has connected the students in her class to the school community but then also the community at large. When asked what she will do with the financial reward, Hamrick said she has not decided what to do with the total $25,000 cash award. I don't even know. Like, have a good Christmas for my daughter, I guess? I don't know. I mean, not that much money, but... For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Nitro. A Grant County teacher also received a Milken Educator Award. Randy Yohe has this one. The Milken Educator Award goes to Ashley Wilkins Frank. Cheers in the Petersburg High School gym, celebrating English language arts teacher Ashley Wilkins Franks as one of 75 Milken Award winners around the country. 
Called the Oscars of Teaching, the Milken Family Foundation annually honors top educators. Wilkins Frank says her dedication to getting students engaged using proven classroom and instructional strategies means teaching kids from all walks of life. Becoming engaged with all of those students, no matter what their ability level or language proficiency or any of those things is very paramount into their success. Each Milken Educator Award comes with a $25,000 prize. Wilkins Frank says she has no idea yet what she's going to do with the money. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. A school in the Eastern Panhandle is the newest recipient of a therapy dog through the communities and schools Friends with Paws program. Liz McCormick has more. Berkeley Springs High School in Morgan County received its very own therapy dog this week named Sky. First Lady Kathy Justice made the announcement in a press release Wednesday. Sky is the 17th therapy dog to be placed in West Virginia's public schools. The program began in April 2022 with the first placement at Welch Elementary. The therapy dog program, according to the governor's office, was launched as a way to alleviate some of the social emotional effects of poverty, addiction, and other at-risk situations situations in the state's communities and schools counties. 53 of the state's 55 counties are part of CIS. Therapy dogs, according to the National Institutes of Health, provide a benefit in the classroom by increasing a positive mood and providing anti-stress effects on the body. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Liz McCormick in Shepherdstown. Two state corrections officials have been fired and missing lawsuit documents have been found. Randy Yohe has more. Charged by the Justice Administration with dereliction of duty, Brad Douglas, Executive Officer for the Jail System, and Phil Sword, Chief Counsel for Homeland Security, have been terminated. Justice staffers say emails and other documents requested in a class action lawsuit thought to be purged have been recovered, explaining the information is at the Southern Regional Jail. A federal magistrate ruled on Monday that state employees intentionally destroyed documents relating to the lawsuit alleging inhumane conditions at the Raleigh County Jail. The state was ordered to put a legal hold on the evidentiary emails and documents. The magistrate recommended a default judgment, holding the state liable for all charges in the lawsuit. WVPB knows of no action taken yet in light of the new findings. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie. A new lawsuit alleges a prisoner at the Southern Regional Jail wasn't given adequate medical care and it led to his death. Brianna Heaney has more. John Lewis Jarrell was in custody for approximately six days before he was transported by ambulance to Beckley Regional Hospital, where he soon died. Jarrell was taken into custody in relation to a prior arrest on June 27th. He has a medical history of tonsil and throat cancer, which resulted in him having a PEG, or feeding tube. According to the lawsuit, Jarrell was supposed to receive at least 36 cans of a calorie and protein-dense liquid over the six days. According to documentation, he only received 9 to 12 cans. The lawsuit depicts multiple other instances where it says that Jarrell's medical needs were neglected. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. According to the National Institutes of Health, West Virginia has the highest number of people with diabetes in the country. In recognition of National Diabetes Month, Caroline McGregor looks at the reasons for the high numbers and shares a doctor's advice for diabetes management and prevention. One in three Americans is at risk of developing diabetes, a chronic disease that affects how the body converts food into energy and releases sugar or glucose into the bloodstream. When there's too much sugar, the pancreas has to work harder to produce more insulin, 
a hormone that controls the amount of sugar in the blood. When there's too little insulin or the body's cells stop responding to it, it can cause serious health problems like heart and kidney disease or even vision loss. Dr. Griffin Rogers is the director of the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases with the National Institutes of Health. He says the incidence of diabetes is increasing rapidly across the country. Diabetes in this country affects 37 million Americans, or about 11% of the U.S. population. In West Virginia, the number of people with diabetes is 13.4%. That's higher than any other state in the country. The state also ranks highest for obesity, putting the state's residents at even higher risk of the disease. Perhaps the major driver of diabetes in this country is being overweight or obese. Because those numbers are accelerating, that really explains a great degree of, of why diabetes is, is so common in this country. People over 50 are also at higher risk as age increases glucose intolerance and insulin resistance. As one gets older, one's metabolism diminishes. The other uh, aspect associated with that is exercise contributes, you know, greatly to maintaining your metabolism and burning off the excessive calories that we take in. And again, as we tend to age, we tend to be a little bit more sedentary and not exercise as much as we did, you know, in our 20s, 30s. According to research by the Mayo Clinic, where you live can also increase the risk for people living with diabetes. Exposure to environmental hazards like air pollution and heat increases inflammation and damages blood vessels. Race or ethnicity also plays a role. Black, Hispanic, Native American and people of Asian descent are considered to be at higher risk of getting the disease. There are three main classifications of diabetes, type 1, type 2, and gestational diabetes, which is developed during pregnancy. Diabetes type 1 is a less common but more serious form of the disease. In diabetes type 2, the body does not produce enough insulin, glucose cannot be converted to energy, and blood sugar levels continue to rise. Gestational diabetes develops during pregnancy and is related to fluctuating hormones. And pre-diabetes is a potentially serious problem that affects more than one in three people. That is a condition in which your blood sugar is higher than normal, but not quite high enough to be categorized as having diabetes. But those individuals are at great risk over the next four to five years of developing diabetes. In both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, symptoms include feeling more thirsty than usual, urinating often, feeling tired or irritable, blurry vision and unexplained weight loss, as well as skin infections and numbness or tingling in the feet or hands. Early treatment can prevent the more serious complications. It turns out, though, that the complications associated with diabetes are similar in both groups. There are increased risk of heart attacks, strokes, certain types of cancer, diseases, they also affect your kidneys, your eyes, your feet. Diabetes, for example, is a leading cause of non-traumatic amputation, leading cause of blindness. In fact, diabetes can affect almost any uh, organ uh, in the body. Rogers said simple lifestyle changes can help prevent diabetes and its related health problems. Exercising regularly, getting good quality sleep, and making healthy food choices can improve insulin sensitivity in people with or without diabetes. Uh, choosing fruits and vegetables, whole grain, low-fat, uh, non-dairy, reducing your calories, and choosing foods that are lower in saturated trans fats and sugar and salt, and also drinking 
water as opposed to sugar-sweet beverages. Rogers says exercise helps control the blood sugar levels and lowers the risk of heart disease and nerve damage. Using muscles helps burn more glucose and therefore improves the way insulin works. Trying to get in for most adults 30 minutes of exercise five days a week. You know, you can certainly join a, you know, a gym, but just walking 30 minutes a day, five days a week. To make it easier, Rogers says the exercise can be broken up into two 15-minute or three 10-minute intervals. To manage type 1 or 2 diabetes, doctors usually prescribe insulin or tablets with regular follow-up treatments to stabilize blood sugar levels. Rogers says taking prescribed medications and following the diabetes ABCs are instrumental to managing the disease. The A stands for A1C level. is a blood test to indicate what the average blood sugar is. The B stands for blood pressure because blood pressure and elevated cholesterol tend to go hand in hand with blood uh, glucose in terms of damaging the blood vessels. Rogers recommends that people set a goal with their healthcare provider on where their numbers should be. The S in the ABCs is for smoking. People who smoke cigarettes are 30 to 40 percent more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. Smoking has an independent effect in terms of potential damaging the small blood vessels. Rogers said people may need to see a dietitian for help with planning their diet and even a mental health counsellor for the anxiety and depression that often accompanies chronic diseases like diabetes. For more information on diabetes and how to manage it, visit wvpublic.org. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. Faced with mounting suicides and PTSD rates, West Virginia first responders struggling with mental health issues are taking matters into their own hands. Randy Yohe spoke with Dylan Olivieto, the founder of SCAR Support Services. SCAR stands for Shared Compassion and Resource Services, an organization to help first responders in times of personal crisis. Dylan, tell me what the philosophy and impetus is behind SCARS. Mental health among first responder and frontline workers has come to the forefront in the last couple years, especially since the, the COVID pan- pandemic. So with that becoming front and center, um, we started identifying more and more folks that were suffering from PTSD-like signs and symptoms, having some um, mental health uh, problems that that went on undiagnosed for, for years. We wanted to find a way to help our, our fellow first responders. And until you've experienced that, you really don't realize you need it. Do first responders around West Virginia get to take a breath between calls, especially between traumatic calls, or is it right off to the next one? Yeah, I can remember at a very young age, um, you know, in the Morgantown area, we had several fatal accidents over the span of maybe 30 days, I think. Out of that 30-day span, you know, I worked 15 or 16 fatal accidents. So we get just a a buildup and you know when when many of us started there was no support other than talking about it maybe with your partner but if it bothered you it was um, portrayed as a weakness we had this very much suck it up and deal with it move on to the next call attitude and that broke a lot of our first responders over the years we've heard that term quite a bit suck it up and some say that that's 
an expired term when it comes to first responders. Others say no, that there's still a pervasive suck-it-up attitude throughout the business. Which is it? The unfortunate part is many of our current administrators come from the suck-it-up-and-deal-with-it era. And so a lot of these folks that come from that time frame are in a position where they're not on the truck as much anymore. They're not out in the field as much anymore. They're not working directly in the emergency room anymore, so on and so forth. So they don't have a full grasp of how bad it has gotten out in the field. Even though State Director of EMS Jody Ratliff says that he is working as hard as he can to put that suck-it-up attitude in the past. Our state is very fortunate to now have a director and a medical director who understand current situation of, of EMS and the current situation of the pro- providers. And I do believe that he's working very hard with not only the agencies, but at state and federal level to make sure that there's funding and resources in place that, to get our responders the help that they need. I see in your website where SCARS offers a judgment-free zone and a place where it's okay to not be okay. What we wanted to make sure to try to provide was a space that was safe where we could allow people to interact with each other, share their stories, share their problems, and not have any fear of being mocked or being, um, you know, made to feel like less of a responder or less of a person for allowing these calls to bother them because, you know, a normal human being does not have to see what we see. You've got your organization, SCARS, in that neck of the woods up in the Shinniston. It's in Marion County, right? Harrison County. Okay, Harrison County. So uh, up in that section of the state, I know over in Huntington they've got Compass, which Mm -hmm. is, I'm sure you've heard of that, which is similar. Um, How vital is it right now that the state's plans for getting a statewide program to help first responders with their mental health and to eliminate this suck-it-up attitude uh, be implemented? Instead of being reactive, we're being proactive. So we're, we're, we want to coach as soon as somebody signs up for an EMT class or as soon as somebody gets hired into a position so that we can continue to monitor that person you know, on a on a semi-regular basis to make sure that their mental health is still in check. But we also have to have resources that are reactive for the folks that have already been through the traumatic incident and don't even realize it. So I think a big initiative for the state to do is figure out how to, you know, it should be no different than getting your, your yearly checkup at your doctor's office is to make sure you're okay. And at an organizational level, to make sure that there are um, resources in place to help mitigate mental health struggles within the community of, of the first responders. Russell Johnson is an attorney in North Carolina, but he was originally from Charleston and his family comes from McDowell County. His first book, The Moonshine Messiah, is a mystery set in the coal fields of West Virginia. Bill Lynch spoke to Johnson about his book and the long road to getting published. When did you take an interest in writing? Um, you know, I think I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. 
I double majored in English and history and minored in creative writing and toyed with the MFA route idea. Well, I knew that I wouldn't be a writer. I was also pretty sure that I didn't want to be a starving writer. And so I uh, did the law school thing instead. But I you know, promised myself that I was going to write a book by the time I was 30. And then I think maybe at like 33, I actually started you know, putting some words down. And then it was when um, my wife and I found out that we were about to have our second child. I told myself, you know, if I don't write a book before this baby's born, you know, life is just going to get in the way and I'm never going to do it. And so that's when I really got serious and got out my calendar and I, I marked off a hundred days and I got up at 4.30 every morning and wrote a thousand words. You know, by the time I got to the end of it, you know, I had a, a, a book sort of, but you know, it was awful. <laughs> it, it was really bad. Um, but at that point I knew I could do it. And I, I caught the bug, you know, like I, I knew I was hooked. And so I've been, you know, diligently pursuing it, you know, ever since then. And uh, what happened to that, that original book is the moonshine Messiah. Is that that book? <laughs> no, that, that one uh, will never be seen. Um, my writing journey has been, I think, sort of a lot of what seemed like fast starts and then long delays. That first book was kind of a John Grisham-esque legal thriller. And so when I, I finished it, wrote it and rewrote it like three times and finally got to where I thought I was ready to query, you know, it's like, well, I'll just, I'll query John Grisham's agent. You know, why not just start right at the top? And so I just shot out an email with a query letter in the first chapter, you know, thought, you know, what the heck, and just kind of kept going about my day. And like an hour later, I had an email back from the agent's assistant saying, you know, we like the first chapter, send us the first 50 pages. And so I did that. And then it was like an hour later, like they said, oh, we like this too, send us the first 100 pages. And so I, I did that. And then I, maybe a day later, they said, okay, send us the whole manuscript. We're intrigued. I was like, wow, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get John Grisham's agent. This is easy. And, you know, of course they passed on the book. And now I spent probably a few years trying to get an agent for that book, rewriting the book, just never, never worked out with that one. And when I, I finally gave up on it and decided to try something new is when I wrote The Moonshine Messiah, you know, I, I sort of knew what I was doing a little bit by then. So, you know, I wrote that one in like six months and it got an agent like almost right away. And so I was like, oh, okay, now, now I've made it. This is, we're going to be cooking here. I wrote this book in 2016. So it was like six years, went through three agents and I ended up placing it myself um, with Shotgun Honey. Talk about putting together the book and coming up with the story. So originally I was very influenced by Elmore Leonard. He's my favorite writer and I love the, the Raylan Givens character. It started as a short story where I just kind of had the idea of like trying to flip the gender and have a female Raylan Givens type character. Instead of putting it in Kentucky, I put it in Southern West Virginia because that's where my parents are from. I've grown up, you know, with kind of stories of life in the coal town and um, they grew up in McDowell County and wore West Virginia. And so I placed it there. It's a, uh, a mountaineer mystery. Were you always drawn to that particular genre? You know, I didn't realize how much I was until I started trying to write. And, and I kept kind of finding myself um, writing mysteries, even when I hadn't set out to. I've thought about this some, you know, when I was when I was very young, my family would go on a lot of car trips. You know, while my dad would drive, my mom would read to us. And she, I guess what she had available were Nancy Drew mysteries. And so maybe that just imprinted something there on me early on. Uh, when I set out to start writing, I, I really thought I'd do more kind of legal thrillers, which are, are in the mystery genre, but whatever reason, just kind of gravitated more towards crime fiction and traditional mysteries. As it's mentioned, it's a, a mountaineer mystery, which does suggest more than one. What else have you got? Do you have a sequel already planned? Yeah, yeah, the sequel is already written. Uh, it should come out probably May, June kind of time frame next year. And I'm working on um, 
the third book in the series, which I think is probably going to be the last book in this series, at least, you know, with Mary Beth as the main character. For you, what was the most difficult process of putting this book together? Uh, I would say the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> uh, the writing part is fun and um, revising is fun. Trying to get published is, is really is really hard. And the, the worst and rejections is fine. I can handle rejection. The worst part is long stretches of silence. You know, it's uh, sending things out and waiting to hear. That's to me is the most difficult part. The book is called The Moonshine Messiah, A Mountaineer Mystery. Russell, thank you very much. Thank you. Ghosts and goblins and things that go bump in the night are a big part of the spooky Halloween story. But are ghosts always scary? Eclectopia host Jim Lang brings us a story about a haunted local boat that the owner says is just fine with him. Ghost stories. We've all heard them. And they usually involve an element of fear. But what about a playful prankster who just wants to have a bit of fun on the boat he used to own? Such is the story of Harry Wilson, former owner of the Stern Wheeler, the Hobby 3. Current owner, J.D. Polly, tells us the story. Harry Wilson started building the boat in 1977, the Hobby 3. He owned a hobby shop in Belpre, Ohio. This was his dream. And he, I mean, he took this boat to Pittsburgh. He took this boat up here to Charleston Regatta. I mean, he was all over the place with it in the time frame, you know, from 85 to 92, he was all over the place with this boat. Him and his wife, Louise, ran the boat until he passed in the pilot house, docking the boat in 92. And then his wife sold the boat to a gentleman here in Nitro named Brian Honecker. I ran the boat for four years while Brian owned it. My good friend at the time, Denny Dawson, and myself ended up purchasing the boat. He sold out to my, my wife back in 14 or 15. We bought him out of his half of the boat. And everybody says he was a prankster. I mean, you could tell by some of the pictures with his red and green suspenders on, he, he owned a hobby shop. I mean, he played with toys. You know, everybody yeah. asks, you know, what, what's hobby, hobby three? Well, he owned a hobby shop and this was his third boat. But there have been some interesting things go on on the boat. We'll be working on it, something, yeah, just weird noises. You'll pack up, go to lunch, come back, have, make sure everything's off, but the radio will be on when you come back. Wow. Yeah, the AM, FM, you know, you'll have music playing. During the night, a marine radio will kick on. You know, and you got to press a button to turn it on. A door will open and shut, just out of nowhere. There's things, you know, you do things on the boat, will disappear, will come back, things have moved. We'll look for something, and it's hidden. It's weird. I think one of the best things was one year we were on our way taking the boat to Marietta. I don't remember what year it was. Denny was running the boat. We were running, getting into Marietta. The wind beat us all day long. I mean, 10, 15, 20 mile an hour gust all day long. Just, we got up to Marietta and they said, we saved your spot. Okay, we we're talking to them on the radio. We had the Lakey Marie and the J.F. Engler tied off on each side of us and we had like 50 foot of boat and they had 52 feet to fit us in like well this is going to be fun denny made the comment harry if you've never helped us before now's the time the wind literally stopped we went in never touched the boat got docked the wind picked right back up again don't know true story 
It's hard to say, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, just because right there in that bend of the river in Marietta, it's always windy. And it's really, it's tough to get docked, especially if you're going in between a couple boats because these things don't handle like a sports car and they're a big sail. A couple more instances, um, you're sleeping at night and you know all the lights are off in the boat and you, you, you get startled, you wake up and there's a light on. You don't hear anything, but... Like any old light in... Well, it's usually the... one in the front downstairs in the main salon. One of the one of the Sconson's lights. There's just a light hanging on the wall. And you'll hear, and the light will come on. But there's nobody else on the boat but me and the wife when we're sleeping. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's just little things like that. I mean, it, it's kind of a running joke amongst the boaters. Something will happen. So have Harry's around or, you know... I never met Harry personally. I met Louise. That fall, we went to Marietta with it, and Louise came down, Harry's wife. When she came down to the boat and walked in it, she literally started crying. And it's like, what did we do? And it's like, no, this is, this, is, this is what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Harry would have loved this. And I kind of made the comment, well, I think he's still here. <laughs> and she said, I wouldn't doubt it. He loved this boat. And since then, she's passed, but... Uh, did she ask you at that point why you made that statement? No, she never asked. She just figured, you know, she, she made the comment that, yeah, I figure he is. Yeah. This, this was his dream. It's kind of, kind of a good story. I wish I would have met him, but I feel I know him <laughs> by, by some of the things that happened. Never really experienced a feeling that, you know, somebody's watching me from behind or mm-hmm. somebody's over in the corner sitting. No, no, never. The picture I showed you downstairs was always on an end table right under the light that always got turned on. Mm. For some reason, <laughs> like I said, I don't know. It's interesting, and you know, I, I hope we give him a comfortable place to hang out. You know, it don't bother me. It don't bother the wife. I mean, we're all we're all good with it. She just says, "Get up and turn the light off." <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, it's no, it's yeah, it's not really a big deal. But we know this was his pride and joy. This was his dream in life, and. We hope we carry on the tradition for it. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jim Lang. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Curtis Tate.